lot of the social entrainment that's gone on with the media and even the education system has pushed people towards this left brain thinking where they're uh, they don't want anything outside of the certainty they've been handed. It becomes frightening for them. They don't understand modern warfare, I would say. And that's a really big thing that I've come to realize that people need to understand modern warfare to understand that they live in a war zone and that this is a unique and very new kind of war zone. And so uh, unless you have that awareness today, I think, you know, you're going to be trapped in the fog of war. And so it's kind of like, you know, I look at it through the lens of warfare that it's like losing a friend to a psychological operation and hoping that maybe they can recover themselves. Before we get into the show, I want to share with you the Z Stack, a powerful immunity building vitamin pack formulated by Dr. Zelenko, the founder of the Zelenko Protocol. Many of you may have seen my interview with Dr. Zelenko explaining how the combination of quercetin and vitamin C together is a powerful zinc ionophore gun which delivers zinc, the bullet, into the cell where the virus is. Zinc blocks the virus from getting into the cell. Quercetin and vitamin C together are a safe over-the-counter alternative to hydroxychloroquine. Access to this is needed when government restricts and bans effective treatments. Also, it has been established that high normal levels of vitamin D is important for warding off sickness and staying out of the hospital. With the dangers of the COVID shot, we need a strong immune system to keep from getting sick. The danger is getting sick. That's when the effects of the bioweapon shot takes over. The Z-Stack will provide you with a defensive weapon to fight a potential virus. You can see the studies and also buy yours today at the link below or at sarahwestall.com under shop. I also highly recommend C60 gel caps, daily zeolite detox, and my probiotic greens to maintain a healthy body, all of which you can get at my shop at sarahwestall.com under shop. Welcome to Business Game Changers. I'm Sarah Westall. I have Simon Essler returning to the program. He is such a gem. I don't think the truth or the independent space has really identified him yet or discovered him yet because he's, I think he should be all over the place. He's so fun for me to talk to. He's just as so insightful. He's a documentary maker. He's also a comedian. He, he does all these things, but he's very, like many comedians, they really are very serious underneath. And with everything that's going on right now, he's been spending a lot of time doing documentary films. He's going to talk about his latest one that really talks about the family unit. He sees it as one organism. The whole unit is one organism. He'll explain it. It's really cool. And the science behind that. The other thing that we talk about is this mysterious 666 finance group that had these Toronto protocols, and it was their strategy on how to take down the West. He'll explain where he got a copy of these, and he talked about them a lot in his documentary. What we're seeing today is a lot of what they talked about, what their strategies are to take us down and undermine our society. And it starts with breaking down the family and why they do that. Of course, they don't break down their own family. They want to pass down generations of knowledge and make sure that their offspring understands the knowledge that has been passed down, you know, the bloodline families, and he talks about it. But they call themselves the 666 group. They're this satanic cult. 
They're very, very powerful within the finance community and other areas of our culture. And he explains that we, I've talked about it a lot on this show. I personally believe they're just people with a weird cult who figured some things out, got themselves in the position of power, and humanity has to deal with it. Yes, it's an evil, and there's people who are good, there are people who are evil, and these, this cultish group of people happened to be in power, and we fell asleep at the switch, and we allowed them to get there, and now that's what we're dealing with. See, the thing is, is that good people don't work really hard to gain power. Evil people do. Good people just want to live their life and really help others and do things. And so what happens, and I think this is why it's a cycle, evil people want to have power and to dominate. Good people don't want that. And so once it gets really bad, then all the good people rise up and take down the bad, and then we start over. And I think that's what the period that we're in right now. And so I do believe we're going to win. I think we're... We, it's just inevitable that we're going to win. Too many good people are seeing what's going on, but we need as many good people seeing what's going on as possible because it's this huge wave of good people taking down this evil and we all do it together because there's no other option. And that's what Simon is. I think you'll get a lot of insight from him. He's just so great. This is a wonderful conversation. It's long. It's two parts. So look for part two. And before we get into it, please uh, like my show. And also, you know, like on Rumble, make sure you do that Rumble thing. Because I guess I don't have anywhere near the Rumble some of these other people do for the amount of views I have. I don't know if they set it up or what, but please push that uh, like. And please push that subscribe And if you're hearing it on something else, please share my work. Okay, let's get into this great conversation with Simon Essler. Hi, Simon. Welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You have an amazing set of material. I know you're a comedian, but you're also a documentary maker. And you've gotten into more serious things because we're in such a serious time. And you have a program, a series called Dauntless Dialogue. What is that, and why did you call it Dauntless Dialogue? Actually, so Dauntless Dialogue is the platform on which this series uh, rests. So uh, Dauntless Dialogue is a platform that I mounted uh, this, well, a couple different things, actually. Uh, But the series on there that my most recent work on there is called Superorganism, and uh, it's focused on the family unit. And Dauntless Dialogue is essentially a library of documentaries that are exposing some of the deeper, darker truths that are going on today. Um, And so uh, I have the series called Superorganism on there that's a six-part docuseries, and then I also have a film that I wrote called Vague Rules on there, and that's about the importation of communist ideals into North America um, over decades, but then to a great extent through the response to COVID. So um, it's a platform that I've worked with for a while now that has really, uh, they've done a great job at building a library of I mean, a lot of it is darker content, but just in the sense that there are some really deep, dark truths that need to be revealed. And so, um, you know, a a friend of mine, Adam Riva, he founded Dauntless Dialogue years ago, and he's been building this library that uh, is really a lot of the content that you could never get anywhere else on the Internet because it will be so quickly censored. 
uh, because it threatens the people that are in power so, so deeply. Um, so, you know, I really, I was excited about working with Dauntless Dialogue to get some content up there because their track record of uh, really documenting some of the things that we haven't been allowed to document has been pretty excellent. Yeah, that I mean, that's exactly right, because that's what this my whole show does. And I am highly targeted because of that. And you're there's it's so great to see more people doing that and doing this because it takes a lot of voices because they can't censor all of us. You know, it just it doesn't work that way. But you did a show on transgender and how that is um, showing that just how ridiculous and absurd that whole thing is and how it breaks down the family and all these other things hurts children, but you lost friends over that. Why do you think you lost friends over that? What well, were you covering that was so hard for them to accept? I think, you know, people are ideologically captured in a very specific way. So uh, they're captured in the sense that their empathy, their natural human empathy is being used against them. That's so, right. You know, they've been convinced on the one hand that they are helping to protect uh, an oppressed and marginalized group who are the victims of, you know, unending uh, oppression and hate crimes. And they have been entrained to see any criticism of a narrative or of, of that group. Uh, they've been entrained to respond emotionally to that without any free thought. And this is really important. Right. So they're not coming from their own life experience. They're coming from programs that have been handed to them that are, are unique uh, in a couple of ways. Number one, they're unique in that it is very left brained. So it's very much about uh, thinking without a broader context thinking without being able to hold multiple contradictory truths at one time. So being able to say that maybe two different things are possible. Uh, so those, those kinds of complex nuanced ways of thinking, they rely on the right hemisphere of the brain. And I think a lot of the social entrainment that's gone on with the media and even the education system has pushed people towards this left brain thinking where they're, uh, they don't want anything outside of the certainty they've been handed. It becomes frightening for them. And so when they see someone beginning to uh, question any of this, a lot of emotional triggers can come up for them. And so, you know, I've had friends who just, uh, you know, they walk away from me because of things that I'm speaking out against or sharing because I think they're, they lack free thought. They've never thought it through. You know, I've had conversations with certain friends who were triggered by my work. And, you know, I, I had to ask them at some point, how did you formulate such a strong opinion about something that you've never looked into yourself? <laughs> that's true you know and it honestly yes. it just kind of left them speechless they didn't know what to say because they had this bold opinion about what i was saying and doing but they had never gone and done the research whereas for me i was coming from the place of having looked into it deeply and responding to my own research so i think what did what, they say because i mean that's such a great response that's perfect uh honestly in that particular instance uh, this person just kind of walked away from me. It was in a bar. It was in like kind of a public space and they just kind of got disgruntled and, and walked away. They had nothing. So I guess it was just raw cognitive dissonance in the end. Um, but it, you know, it was the first time I had ever formulated that question so succinctly to someone in that kind of moment. Yeah, and, that was, that's just wonderful. Go ahead. Yeah. So I think, 
you know, that there's that example. And then, you know, there's over the years, I've had a lot of this, a lot of friends who get triggered by anything I'm doing that's more conspiratorial. And I think with, with the whole transgender issue, um, you know, in many ways, I, I understand, like I have compassion because, you know, they think they're standing up, let's say, especially with the, the child thing. So the belief that one needs to stand up for trans children uh, and that they're standing up for hatred against children and oppression against children. You know, it's funny because there's a lot of irony there because in fact, the, the transgender issue and gender ideology in general has become very dangerous for children. And in That's fact, right. standing against it is standing up for children. Um, but you know, I've had like friends who, who turned their backs on me, you know, they, they were, um, one, one person was writing songs about protecting transgender children. And really they believe, they really believe and they're They're good people who believe and, um, they don't understand modern warfare, I would say. And that's a really big thing that I've come to realize that people need to understand modern warfare to understand that they live in a war zone and that this is a unique and very new kind of war zone. Yes. And so uh, unless you have that awareness today, I think, you know, you're going to be trapped in the fog of war. And so it's kind of like, you know, I look at it through the lens of warfare that it's like losing a friend to a psychological operation and hoping that maybe they can recover themselves. You said that it's complicated that you can have two conflicting ideas at once. Cause I, I say that too. I think about that too. Two things can be true yeah. and that it's important to understand that. Tell me what you specifically mean by that. Well, in being in the sort of conspiracy culture space and seeing like right wing responses to things and left wing responses to things, I see even in those spaces, even spaces where people claim to be like truthers and free thinkers, they get very certain about what's going on. So, for mm -hmm. example, uh, you'll have some people on the right who see what's going on with gender ideology and their response is to blame people from gay and lesbian communities and say that, that you know, that community is responsible for doing yep, this yep. when the truth is really that that's a community that was taken advantage of through warfare operations. And so there's kind of like a cover that's been put there. And so it's important to understand that um, there are plenty of people from the LGBT community that stand against this. You know, you have groups like Gays Against Groomers who yep. have, they have been very outspoken against this. Um, and so uh, you have that. You also have the reality of gender dysphoria. There are a very, very small, small number of people that do actually get clinical gender dysphoria and do actually need support, and they're being harmed by this. That's true. Um, and so uh, to be anti-LGBT or to any of that, to, to believe that um, anyone coming from that side is part of the war on the family, you know, I've seen those kinds of... Um, that kind of rigid certain thinking when um, we need that more nuanced view to understand the complexities of the situation so that all the different people who are impacted by this are included in our, our sort of view of this theater of war. And well, and they're doing that ex the exact same thing when it comes to black people and women and men. And, you know, it, it, there ends up being just hatred um, along those lines when it's, it's, it's it's like not all white people are bad bad you know so we don't all want to enslave you and abuse you you know we really do want your freedom and we want you to grow and be loved and stuff and so there's so much hatred in the black community for white people yeah you see these viral videos come out of 
of uh, black people that, you know, I saw one the other day and it was about how white people are just inherently evil, that they can't help it. Uh, And, you know, this kind of entrainment, it, it says a lot about our nature as social beings. And I think, you know, all of us, all of us, uh, need to be cognizant of the extent to which we're spending time producing our own free thoughts outside of these group think spaces. That includes truther and you know people who are seeking truth online. You need to be spending enough time to really get to know yourself and to get to know yourself as uh, as as distinct from the currents of information that are flowing around you. And I think people who are that caught up and that emotionally entrained into those narratives, they have not taken the time to really know themselves deeply enough to become distinct from the tribal mentality that they've been pulled into. And I think this is something, this is a bigger pattern for humanity right now. There's going to be this big letting go of tribal and collective thinking um, to a more hyper-individualized way of, of, of living and being. But I think that the process of that occurring is very painful and chaotic because the human race has been very reliant on this tribal collective way of being. And so there's some of this is just requisite chaos to, I think, this transfer into a, a human way that is more centered on the individual in many ways and is also decentralized in terms of our societal structures. And we're seeing that happen you know, with media is a great example. The decentralization of media has been a big thing. And you see the credibility of the mainstream centralized media systems falling as media decentralizes. And uh, I think that's one of the big reasons we're able to fight back. I think a decentralized media structure has allowed us to fight back against some of this propaganda um, because as we are decentralized, we're much harder to actually completely suppress and silence. That's um, and right. So yeah. It's, it's an advantage for us. It is an advantage. And it's the only way that I think we're going to win is, is for it to be decentralized. But that's the importance of having so many voices is that we can distinguish when something's really messed up. There's some, there's somebody out there that'll say, wait a minute, guys, hey, this is not right. There's This is off, and we need to rethink this. And then people start rethinking it. I think it's a challenge for people. But you also really studied the family and the fact that there were actual groups called 666. They call themselves the 666, and they have the Toronto Protocols, where it's a strategy they created a war on the family and how to take down the west so that they can create this new world order bs that they're trying to do can you talk about that because i think that would be very enlightening for people to start to understand what they're really doing to us yeah so this is something that i got really deeply into in uh, my series superorganism um so Essentially, there's these documents called the Toronto Protocols, and they were leaked to a journalist named Sergei Manast, and they were given to him allegedly by a French intelligence agent who wanted this exposed. And these these two meetings occurred in Toronto in the 60s and the 80s. I think it was 67 and 85 or 65 and 87. And Uh, They had these two meetings where they were unpacking their warfare operations that they had successfully um, enacted in the past 
and then their warfare operations that they plan for the future. And they talk about their warfare strategy and they describe their warfare strategy as the genocide of the vital for the benefit of the occult. And so this group, the 666, were, you know, they're focused on installing a new world order and they talk about it in a couple different terms. So, uh, for example, one of the meetings was actually called the Red Wave. And this was in reference to a huge wave of communist ideals they planned on installing in the Western world as part of this New World Order plan. And they identify the family unit as one of their major, major obstacles. So they outline these warfare operations, essentially talking uh, in detail about how they're going to undermine children and the development of children, about how they're going to make sure that the mother is removed from the family. And um, all of this chaos that they were seeking to, to um, target the family with was one of the ways that they were going to get the New World Order installed uh, amidst this sort of plan that for them has been unfolding over many generations. So they reference their ancestors and that they are continuing the work of their ancestors in enacting this plan. So this is something that they have been passing through their family lines for many generations while making sure that our families are not strong enough to pass knowledge down the generations at all. And so that's one big thing for them is that they wanted to, well, they number one, they noticed that the family unit was ideal for moving knowledge and wisdom through the generations. And with that knowledge that they had because they're doing it so successfully, they targeted the Western family to make sure that it could no longer pass knowledge down the generations so that eventually the youth that are raised in these conditions, they don't have any of the wisdom of the past and they're just at the whims of the social engineering of the day. Of the, the governments is what they're trying to do. They're trying to take everybody out of it. There are young people now that are watching these icons have children with you know, like there's men out there having 10 babies with different women and the women are all into it because it's basically saying the father doesn't matter at that point. Um, because, you know, if you're willing to have a kid with a dad who is knowingly not going to be around and they really, these guys just want to have as many babies as they can with different women, that's happening. And it's, it's just seems so absurd. Is it something that and it's and it's being pushed by the media. What do you think of that? You know, the, the war on men and the war on fathers is uh, it's quite acute. And the what we have lost, I think what's most tragic is we don't realize what we've lost, because I don't think at any point fathers were properly understood and celebrated in our culture. That's right. uh, I don't think it was realized ever. And so this is one of the things that I found in my research for this series. I started looking into the science of fathers and what is really going on with a father and the mother and the child on the level of biology and psychology. And so I found some very interesting things. And this is why I called the series Superorganism, because I, I, I became inspired by this idea of the family unit as a superorganism designed to cultivate wisdom and send it into the future. And so what I found, some of the research I found was very beautiful. So for example, when a father, um, he impregnates the woman and if he is devoted to that woman, let's say he's devoted through his presence throughout the pregnancy and he's supportive and he's, you know, he's around and he's emotionally available, 
what happens is the father's body actually starts to be changed by the mother's biofield. And so his hormones start to change. They start to line up with hers to a certain extent. He might start to mirror some of her experiences with hunger changes. But there are other things that are going on. For example, uh, the change in prolactin in the father's body. And in these studies, they noticed that fathers who were devoted and ended up developing more prolactin Later on, after the baby was born, those fathers' brains were more responsive to their child's cries. And so what's happening is that the father's devotion to the mother is creating a biofeedback loop that is creating uh, connections that the father's body will eventually make with the child once it's born. And so we have this beautiful harmony between the family members where they're actually becoming biologically intertwined but uh, the the most beautiful about all beautiful thing I found about all this research is that devotion seems to come up again and again in our biology, in the the evolution of the family biologically speaking. And so I found this with the child and the mother as well. So when we look at the war on fathers, um, what we're losing is is a huge deal because men are transformed by becoming devoted fathers on many, many levels. Like one of the other things that happens is the the man's testosterone levels change. And so his emotional landscape changes. And so uh, if we're looking at wanting men to become better in this world, even if you're looking at the idea of men as like toxic or aggressive, any of that, uh, that sort of left wing ideology, it still stands to reason that the best thing that a man can do to better himself is become a devoted father because there are biological changes that will unfold with him that he he won't even be participating in that. It'll be automatic. And so there's a lot of beauty there that we've missed. And that's a lot of what we're losing in this war on fathers and families in general. Oh, that is just such a cool story. I haven't heard that before, but that makes a lot of sense to me. Is it that the why men gain weight when their women, you know, their, their partner's pregnant, that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah, that's what's really going on. It's there. It's the the man's body tuning into the woman's body, and that is what becomes the father's connection to the child. So that's what's going on there. That's one of the reasons, evolutionarily speaking, the, bo- the father's body is mimicking the mother's because it's building up what will become its connections to the child. It's amazing. That's that is amazing when it shows how important it is because the the children who have fathers. The studies are now coming out that they are so much better connected. They're they're happier. Happiness is the most important, but they're happier. They're better adjusted. And, you know, with depression being off the charts, you know, we blame, you know, Wi-Fi and social media and all this stuff. But a lot of it is just a lack of a father. Absolutely. You know, one of the other things that came up in the series was that there's a lot of studies showing that. Uh, not having a father leads to specific illnesses. So they really found like high numbers of children with asthma didn't have fathers and that there's like specific ailments that are more common in children that don't have fathers in their lives. And so we see that there, again, there's biological keys here that are going on where there's something, there's biological feedback loops that are they've been of course they're there when you think about it logically this is millions of years of evolution the idea that it can be dismissed with a single wave of propaganda is absurd um so you know it blew me away to be honest because i was inspired by this idea of the family as a super organism based on a quote that i found 
by uh, someone for that, from the Haudenosaunee people and talking about the seventh generation and living now for the seventh generation. And uh, they talk about this ability to gather and bundle the wisdom of the past and the wisdom of the present and shoot it as far into the future as possible. And that family and community are the most ideal things to do that. And, and when we look at it almost like a technology, we can see that the family is uniquely poised to generate knowledge and wisdom and then to make sure it gets as many generations into the future as possible. But of course, for that to occur, you need stable family after stable family after stable family for generations, which is exactly what the 666 say they're trying to stop. Well, let's talk about, first of all, I want to say that is amazing because how else do we continue our learning? That's our problem. How do we continue this learning? I love that idea. Of, of being very orchestrated on passing down that wisdom. That's what they're doing, right, in their yeah. families. And they, they have a huge advantage over us because they do that. But let's talk about this kook group. I I think they're a, they're a cult group that has figured some stuff out and has taken over. I don't think that they, I don't think that they're anything more than people who are a cult who figured some stuff out, and now we're suffering with that. So that's my opinion. You might think differently, but let's talk about what they really believe and who they are. Yeah, so we're dealing with, you know, a group of Satanists who uh, they're devoted to the material world. So everything is about personal pleasure and materialism to the furthest extent possible. And so uh, they believe in... Um, mastering the material world in becoming masters of it by having dominance over humanity. And so the, the realization of this satanic sort of dream is this ultimate material achievement. Um, and of course, that's why these Satanists uh, all lean towards trans transhumanism as well. Uh, transhumanism is a logical extension of Satanism in that it's the realization of uh, you know, life extension and uh, um, being able to overcome aging and death and all these things, but but not through spiritual achievement, through material dominance. And so they, they believe deely in living that to the greatest, greatest extent possible, but they also believe in saturating the people under their control with that kind of materialistic lifestyle. This is something else that they bring up explicitly in the Toronto Protocols, that they want the people of Earth to be saturated by uh, what they call like a life of leisure. So just to be totally focused on personal pleasure, uh, on just, you know, food and vacations and uh, entertainment and uh, sexuality, unrestrained sexuality. Um, and so for them, uh, that that is a world uh, that, that's a perfect world to them where they sit at the top in ultimate material dominance while the people under them uh, don't realize they're enslaved while they are in fact enslaved and that's a big part of of their their vision okay now why would they be enslaved if they're um and i i have my own answer for this but i want to hear yours why would they be enslaved if they have all these worldly possessions and they get pretty much whatever they want well, human beings have a, a inherent desire to grow and thrive and, and to, to spiritually expand. So when we're put in 
situations where we uh, we can't do that. We can't um, successfully grow together, even in a social sense, let alone the individual sense. And when we are, uh, I guess, misled in this way, there's something that they call the errancy of the spirit in the Toronto Protocols. They say they want to create the errancy of man's spirit. They want the wandering of man's spirit. And I think that's a good description of something actually quite painful that's occurring when we are enslaved in this way. We are wandering from our spirit. We are disassociated from our essence. And so they're cognizant of that. And I think people, you know, we we, we sense this on a deep level. Those of us that, that are fighting back, we sense what's occurring. And so uh, we are willing to put it all on the line to sacrifice a life of ultimate material pleasure to fight for the spirit of humanity, which is what they overtly state they're attacking. Yeah, because most of us could be pretty successful. I mean, we could make some serious money if we decided that was what our goal was. But we say, no, that's not our goal. Our goal is for our children and for humanity. And so there's something bigger than us. And that's why we're fighting. And Okay, so they know that if you're just stuck in this material pleasure world and you don't understand the spirit and the and and have a rich they want you to be poor spiritually and the way to get there is to give us all sorts of junk yeah that's the way they look at it and i think um of course some people have submitted to this we can see lots of the human race has fallen for that trap we can see it in the way that it was initially sort of tested out in the West, and then you see a lots of lots of other countries in the world starting to mimic the Western way that is leading them down that path of, of materialism and um, excessive forms of wealth that create you know these these forms of illness, you know uh, diseases of affluence they call them right, um, and so we're we're looking at uh, a pretty successful warfare operation in the sense that a lot of this was done slowly enough over the generations that we didn't really realize what was being done to us. And part of that comes with this short-term thinking that we don't we don't think clearly about the seventh generation as a culture. We need to start thinking and living in this way that is sort of transgenerational. I mean, of course, there were cultures that were doing that. When we look at like, you know, here in, in Canada, the, the, the war on the native peoples here with the residential schooling and all of that, that was meant to sever the connection of their culture and stop it from moving on down their family lines. But prior to that, they had been living to ensure that knowledge was passed on. You know, there were very specific systems to make sure that knowledge is preserved and makes it into the future. And you have to look at our modern culture and wonder where in our modern culture are we living that way? You know, you can't just expect the internet to, to carry things to your children. Like, we have to really work to do that ourselves as family units, but also in a larger sense, that needs to become part of the cultural discussion. It needs to become part of the Overton window where it's regularly talked about and is a part of public policy in daily life. Well, one thing is that it is important for us to gain more wealth in order for people to have access to food. I mean, there's a point where you want a certain amount of wealth so that so that you can feed your family, you can live comfortably, you can engage in the activities that you want to engage in. But but to drop everything else at the expense of just getting worldly possessions is what we're talking about, right? And using other people 
at all odds to get worldly possessions. I mean, there's a line here, right? We, we want people to have the necessities and even more than that. We want them to have a leisurely life at times, you know, be able to do things. But this is something different, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, you want like something, for example, like generational wealth. This is a good thing to be able to accumulate wealth that will then be passed on to your children's children. That that itself is a good thing. I think we're looking at uh, values. We're talking about values here and what what value system people are living within. And I, I think there is nothing wrong with seeking success in the world and even some level of material enjoyment, of course, is fine. We're not looking to become anti-materialists, but uh, we want to balance it with with values that um, are as rich uh, as can be so that let's say we are a family that gets generational wealth that can then be passed on to the children. You want the values to be passed on that are going to ensure that that money is used to, to be of service to the world, to sustain the system of values that your family represents. You know, when we look back on like olden times and families have like, you know, a family crest and there's like the, the family crest represents like the values of that family. And, you know, you want the, the material world to be infused with our spiritual purpose. And I think that's what families are uniquely positioned to do. It's like, what is our family's mission? And if we become a family that has generational wealth that can that can be passed on for many generations. What is the the message? What is the mission that helps move that wealth through the generations? So you know, materialism itself is not the problem, and wealth is not the problem. It's really about infusing it with our our purpose. And it's not about getting tribal within the family either, right? I mean, we we want to accept that's what the Native Americans really had figured out. They knew how to work within with everybody. It was. There were some tribes that were warring and things, but they were able to get past just their little family unit and see beyond that and, and carry that down for generations between families, right? Yeah, and that's that broader cultural context that I think we've lost. That um, Because we've become a consumer culture, specifically a consumer culture that consumes culture that comes from a centralized production system, um, then we're not we're not in control of what our culture is doing and how it is utilizing community at large. And I think this is part of that pattern of decentralization that is going to be beneficial. So the centralized production of culture has been a big problem for us because we have been a part of this hegemonic structure that has not benefited uh, this idea of, of moving wealth and knowledge in the right direction towards the future. And so, you know, what kind of culture are we producing as we move into this era of decentralization? How are we going to take advantage of that by becoming producers of culture that is cognizant of these things and not falling back into the trap of having certain cultural producers rise to the top so that we go back into the system of centralized production? So I think, you know, this is going to be a different era for people in that uh, it's no longer going to be a race to become the absolute source of cultural production it is going to be uh what something akin to to what noam chomsky calls anarcho-syndicalism which is all these these decentralized nodes 
that uh, there's societal structures that are interdependent and reliant upon each other, but none of them ever grow more powerful than the other. And I think that's sort of what we're moving towards in terms of being a society that produces culture that is more responsible and cognizant of what we really need and is appropriate for us as a species. Well, but that was always the founding of the United States was always to push that down to the lowest level as possible so that we could have the, exactly what you're talking about. And the Internet might be able to allow us to get there if we get rid of all this censorship and their their fight to maintain that that censor or that centralized, you know, control. But let's talk about how they could use this and some of the things that you're saying against us, because when. I, I right away I could say okay they could take what you're saying, miss half the point. This is how psyops work. They miss half the point, say half the truth, and then use it against us. Hmm. So for example, when you start talking about wealth and material things, they'll use that against us and implement communism, which then implements centralized control. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think you're right that the the tendency within psyops to use half-truths, this is a, a part of everyday life. Like, this is a part of the war that we live in. And this is what I, you know, I talk about this a lot now, that awareness, not just of the fact that we're in a war, but awareness of the specific war we're in is crucial right now. We have to be producing culture and wealth and all these things within the context of this this war, and it, it, it is what is known as fifth generation warfare, which is warfare that is designed to hide the fact that it's a war. It's warfare that is designed to hide the fact that you're even being attacked. And it's warfare that's designed to stop you from being able to respond to that attack with your own warfare should you become cognizant of it. And so that that's crucial to understand. Right? We, there's nothing we should be doing that is ignorant of the theater of war in which we live. All everything falls under that context now. You know, so if you were, you know, if you were in a, the World War II battle zone, you wouldn't be trying to live a normal life as if you're not surrounded by bombs and tanks. So you know, you really need to think of it that way. That every day you wake up inside of a war that seeks to use you as a weapon and seeks to attack you in certain ways. And so we need to understand things like psychological opera operations and disinformation and misinformation with great clarity because that's not going away anytime soon. And so, you know, this is some of the knowledge that I even feel as a father is is beneficial to pass on to my children. That, that it's important that they understand that they, they live in a war zone to an extent. And as they become older, more of this becomes more appropriate and relevant, but there is a war on their innocence. There is a war on their ability to, to be free-minded children. And I don't intend on hiding that from my kids. Why, why would I hide the fact that they live in a war zone from them? That seems dangerous to me. So all of that seems to tie in together in my opinion. That's true. We have to understand the danger that all of this is. This is just as dangerous as a regular war but they're fighting for your mind. And then you get caught up in this goofiness that it's like a cult. You get caught up in it and you don't realize that you're helping the enemy. Yeah, that's really what they want. And I think, you know, when I look at friends of mine that have turned on me, that's a lot of what it is, is that they have, they have fallen prey to the enemy's warfare operations. And it's understandable. It's perfectly understandable because, uh, how could you fight back if you don't even know you're in a war? Uh, I get it to a great extent. And so, uh, you know, we need 
certain certain concepts need to become commonplace. Like people need to understand the Overton window, for example. That needs to become common knowledge. Explain it. Explain what that is then. 